Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's start with Stan Collender, at the budget guy uh, on Twitter. Of course, uh, worked on Capitol Hill as a staffer now, as I said. Uh, with Corvus MSL uh, MSL Group uh, in Washington D.C. Stan, great to speak with you uh, as always. Good morning. Sounds like you got a busy show today. Yeah. <laughs> as as ever. Stan, let, let me start uh, with what happened yesterday afternoon. I mentioned it seems like the leader didn't have uh, the votes to get this through. He didn't have much wiggle room. He needed uh, to have all but two uh, uh, Senate Republicans on on his side. What made him realize that there wasn't going to be a path forward here before the July Fourth recess? Well, it was very simple. They they took a hard count. And they said, all right, there isn't 50 votes here. And, do we, and so they had a decision to make. Do we want to move ahead with the vote and lose it and then come back and look terrible during the recess? Or do we want to pull the, uh, pull the vote, stop it from happening, make believe that we haven't lost anything yet and say that we're going to keep negotiating? And they decided on the, uh, the second path. Now, David, that's not insignificant because there were some people who were saying that McConnell wanted to lose the vote on health care and move on. So this clearly shows that he's not quite ready to, to lose the vote on health care, that passing something is actually a priority for him higher than many people thought. We've seen this movie before, haven't we? We saw it in the House. We saw the House pull the bill, come back and then pass uh, something. And the, the majority leader says he's optimistic there will be a bill that uh, he and his colleagues can all support. Uh, do, you, do you understand his optimism? No. Uh, let's remember that uh, with, without going too far into the weeds, Paul Ryan needed 91 percent of his caucus to vote with him. So we had a little bit of room. McConnell needs 96 percent of his caucus. He's only got two votes to spare. Um, and that's going to be very, very difficult given that there are some people who are up for re-election and Republicans who uh, can't vote for something as, as draconian or as, as difficult, as, as potentially harmful or as unpopular as, as, the, uh, as the plan that the, the Senate developed uh, seems to be. Um, so I, he, you would expect him to be optimistic. You wouldn't expect him to be down in the dumps, especially coming out of the White House. But I, I'm finding it difficult to understand what this path forward is for all those who say – that, oh, he's got $200 billion, he can just give it away. That doesn't help you when you're talking about defunding Planned Parenthood or cutting people off Medicaid um, who would otherwise be on it. Medicaid is an extremely popular program, particularly among senior citizens, and their children who think that if it doesn't exist, they'll be paying for their parents. So it's not going to be as easy as uh, McConnell was kind of indicating yesterday, <clears throat> excuse me, to come up with an alternative. Stan Collender with us, 99.1 FM Studios in Washington, which is a good thing. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide, coast to coast. Stan, just as one example, within the heroin opioid epidemic, does McConnell just bribe the moderate senators and say, okay, I said $2 billion for heroin opioid. I'm going to make it $40 billion or whatever the number is? Is it, is it, just, that, is it just that cold, factual, the way they do this? I don't think so, Tom. I, I mean, I, that's old politics, and, yeah. and um, 
I think, yes, that's part of what some of the moderates would want. But when you talk about some of the things like Planned Parenthood and throwing people off Medicaid and the number of people who would lose insurance or not be able to afford insurance, let's put it that way, um, the plan, the uh, opioid uh, dollars might not be enough. And plus, you've got this additional question, that is, if you start reducing the amount that you're going to reduce the deficit, um, then you start losing, making conservatives a little nervous that it doesn't do as much for them as they wanted. So for every vote you, you might pick up on the moderate side, you might tend to lose one on the conservative side. And that's the calculation that, that uh, McConnell's got to put together. That is, is there any way for him to add votes without losing any? Not to be too cynical here, Stan, but I wonder if the, the plan here, uh, the way that this bill was written, the way it came about, uh, the way the schedule worked out, the senators didn't have to go to their home states before uh, the Senate Majority Leader wanted there to be a vote. How does the calculus change yeah. now that they have to go home and flip burgers and go to picnics here over the July 4th holiday and interact with their constituents before they come back for a vote? Um, it's going to play both ways. I mean, it's clearly the uh, Republicans are going to hear from their uh, their donors saying, you promised us and we demanded that you do something about Obamacare and you get rid of it and you haven't done it yet. Get back there and get it done. At the same time, as they go walking through July 4th parades and, uh, as you said, going to bar outdoor barbecues and things, they're going to be hearing from people saying, don't cut my Medicaid. You know, don't, I've got a pre-existing condition and this is going to make it impossible or I'm a senior oh. citizen. Uh, and, and I'm not going to be able to afford health care. What are you doing this to me for? So, yeah. Uh, and, and remember, this, this bill has only got about a 20 percent popularity rate. So it'll be an interesting question, David. Um, is it are the donors more effective as, as lobbyists uh, back home or are the voters? Mm. Well, this frankly probably works better on radio than TV. We can all imagine confident politicians walking out yesterday. And, you know, it's a caricature. It looks like Saturday Night Live. They're all standing, you know, confident. Confidently with their body language, Stan Collender, and that. Are these people scared stiff? I, I, I mean, the, the, the level of co not cockiness, but we're in control. Are they, Stan? No, clearly not. Um, and and you, you've got to think that Republicans who were celebrating just six months ago an unexpectedly large victory and, and, and control over all branches of government are now starting to look at what's going on and saying, this is not good. They've got a president who's not popular and his popularity is going down. Uh, and he's not involved in the legislative process. You've got a, a health care bill that's enormously unpopular, uh, and much less popular than the, uh, the Affordable Care Act that they want to get rid of. Um, and it, 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 you've got Democrats who are, uh, energy and enthusiasm is going up. So you've got to believe that this is a, a, a brave face, a stiff upper lip, as ma many of your, uh, your, your British hosts would probably say. <laughs> but um, it, this, this, this is nothing. Any, this, this is the beginning of real worry time. And remember, we're only a few months into this, this congressional term. It, it, it's, you have to wonder what turns it around for Republicans at this point. If they can't get health care done, what happens to tax reform? And if they can't get health care and tax reform done, what happens to the rest of their program? Uh, you know, what happens to the defense dollars that the president and John McCain wants? What happens to the, the big domestic cuts that the, that, that the president seems to want but Republicans are unwilling to give him? Do they look like – do the congressional Republicans in the White House look like the gang that couldn't shoot straight when it comes to econo economic policymaking? Stan, a little later today on TV, I'm going to talk with Tim Phillips, the president of Americans for Prosperity, of course, a Koch brothers back group here that opposed this piece of, of legislation. Is this a victory for him? Can he count what happened yesterday as a victory? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he didn't want the bill yesterday, to, as, as expressed yesterday, to pass, and it didn't. Um, the question is, does he have an alternative that could pass, that, is, that would be any more popular? 
Um, that's the next step right now. I mean, David, we're dealing in, in the question of minutes and seconds rather than long-term policymaking here. So they wanted a, he got the victory that he wanted yesterday. The question is, where do you go forward? And it's not clear that there is that path or that he's got a path that, that, that can get 50, 51 Republican votes. It just strikes me, Stan, here, the, the real difficulty is you've got senators who oppose this bill who aren't really all on – they're not on the same page. There, there are a lot of moderates and there are a lot of conservatives who don't like it. It's hard for me to see them coming together to create something here that uh, – that they and their colleagues could support. Well, and, I mean, that's exactly right, but the most interesting and maybe the most important thing that McConnell said yesterday wasn't that we're optimistic or I'm optimistic, he said, about moving forward and getting a bill passed. He said he absolutely wasn't going to work with Democrats. Um, You know, in the past, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when I was on Capitol Hill, um, there would have been some negotiation, some discussion, can we get five Democratic votes? It looks like he has you know, taking that path away. Um, and, right. and and then with, with what you just said, David, is there a majority in the Republican Party, that Republicans in the Senate, that would get yeah. anything done? Okay, here's what we're going to do for us. We're going to come back with Stan Collender. I promise that our next block will be health care free. <laughs> <laughs> we'll actually talk Hold about something it. mundane like uh, the mathematics and the fictional plugins of our federal <laughs> budget process. Mr. Collender, holding court at our 99.1 FM studios in Washington. Michael Barr, do you know that the only reason we get Colander into the studio is the food court in Washington is awesome. <laughs> it is outstanding. It is it has a bipartisan protein counter. There's a hot chocolate machine. Smoothies, yeah. avocado smoothies, and it's great. Yeah, no pork. Thank you, uh, Colander, the <laughs> twins. Then. No pork. The buried within the 20-page or so summary of the CBO report on your budget, is a paragraph on the guesstimates of GDP. There's no one better to talk to about this than Stanley Collender, MSL Group. He's got a Twitter handle. You can remember it, The Budget Guy, which actually works for Stan. <laughs> Stan, you know, they talk about setting GDP now 1%. They use an adverb here. It's very dangerous in your work of line. Roughly one percentage point higher is what GDP used to be. How critical is the GDP plug-in to the current expectation and realities of deficit to GDP? Well, it's critical. Uh, it, it's absolutely critical. If the, if the, as you start to manipulate or let's not use a, such a Machiavellian term, but as, as the, that number starts to change, the long-term outlook changes on the deficit as well. Uh, the longer to, it, it's out and the longer that GDP number stays in place, uh, the bigger the, bigger the, the, uh, the delta um, excuse me for using jargon like that. No, that's okay. Delta's not jargon. And bonus points for that here. Yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't ring a bell or something like that. We should, like, we yeah. <laughs> um, but but this don't forget, uh, the administration used a rosy scenario of 3%. CBO is saying that's not likely. And the difference there is the difference between a ba- budget that balances over 10 years and one that is still vastly in deficit and debt. Um, and so these numbers become critical. It's one of the reasons that Republicans were so critical of CBO until recently anyway, uh, because they just didn't think it was being optimistic enough and therefore was forcing more action by the administration. I remember talking to uh, Alice Rivlin a few months back uh, when CBO was taking some hits, and she said it comes with the territory. Uh, when you head up that organization, you're used to being hit on both sides by Democrats and, and Republicans. Is, is today somehow different in light of the rhetoric we've heard directed at this nonpartisan office? Is it more bruised and battered than it has been in the past? All right. I don't want to sound like I'm from Washington, but I want to answer this in two different ways. Okay. 
All right. Uh, number one, yes, these uh, it, the, the criticism is goes with the territory. Alice is exactly right. Um, but the viciousness of the criticism with Newt Gingrich calling it a socialist organization is not wrong, but a socialist organization whose time has passed um, is is virtually unprecedented. Uh, th that is that, uh, you know, CBO has never taken this, these kinds of partisan you know, desperately partisan hits with an attempt to discredit an organization whose credibility should never, you know, has never really been questioned that that significantly. But let, let me just answer this is the second way I wanted to answer it. Um, in spite of all the criticism that, that CBO has taken and the hits that it, and, and the slings and arrows that have come in its direction, it's probably stronger today than it was two months ago. Uh, even Paul Ryan yesterday or the day before came out with a statement saying it's good to have it around. And notice the way CBO released its numbers. It didn't hold a press conference. It didn't make a big deal. It just released the numbers and let the numbers speak for themselves. Um, and while, yes, the White House criticized them, the congressional Republicans did not. Um, so I, if anything, the Congressional Budget Office has come out of this discussion stronger, more credible than it was before. Uh, when you, there, there's a lot of criticism that when it came to the Affordable Care Act stand, the, the CBO was was wrong. They forecasted wrong. Uh, do, do people assess the record of the CBO? In other words, they're, they're making their best assumptions and guesses and estimates based on the data they have. Uh, how right have they been throughout history? More correct than the Office of yeah. Management and Budget or the General Accounting Office or, or almost anybody else who do, does these kinds of numbers. Uh, remember, I said this on, on TV this morning, CBO's only job is to try to get the numbers right. Um, now, they're going to be wrong over a 10-year period. I mean, everyone's going to be wrong over a 10-year period. Yeah, but the critical thing, Stan, we're going to run out of time here, but I think this is important. To be clear, the CBO does not make point estimates. Amateurs make point estimates. The media makes point estimates because we love the Mickey Mouse certitude of it. These guys are pros, and they make fan distribution guesstimates of where we are in 10 or 20 years, right? Right. And, and we know that 20 years from now that, that it's going to be five presidential elections, 10 presidential, uh, 10 congressional elections from now. And God knows how many, you know, natural and man-made disasters. Exactly. Are things are going to be different than we're expecting. But based on what we know now, right. CBO has been more accurate than anybody. 20 else. seconds. What's your tip point on deficit to GDP? Is Colander's radar up at 4%, <laughs> 5%, 6%? What's your tip point where it becomes a story it was in our ute? Uh, probably four and a half to five. Four and a half to five. Okay, this has been great. Stan Collender, thank you so much at our 99.1 FM studios in Washington. Stop by Gucci today, Stan, and get your bonus prize. <laughs> they they open early for surveillance For coming on a Wednesday. <laughs> they open like at 2 p.m. I don't know what that's I don't know what that's about. Here is always to be joined by Kamal Srikumar, the president of Srikumar uh, Global Strategies, and so much to talk about. We've talked about healthcare, but there's a, a lot more to talk about, of course, in markets and, and economics. Yesterday afternoon, Janet Yellen, the Fed chair, sat down with Lord Nicholas Stern uh, in London uh, for a spirited conversation on uh, the Fed's mandate, of course, uh, the way that it looks at data, and also on regulation. And to be fair, uh, Lord Nicholas Stern sort of led her in that direction, but it struck me that uh, Janet Yellen was very eager to talk about the regulatory legacy of the Federal Reserve here as we, appoint, as we approach a point where there could be a turning point when it comes to the regulatory responsibilities uh, of the Fed. I don't know if you were listening uh, yesterday, but how cognizant do you think that Fed Chair Janet Yellen is now of, of where the Fed is headed when it comes to regulation? 
I think uh, they have switched uh, objectives, uh, David. I think it used to be inflation and it used to be growth, and they are not, neither of them is uh, uh, going by what the Fed would want. So she's moving on to regulation, the need for proper regulation, as well as what is happening with respect to uh, the, the buildup of speculative pressures. So it seems to me that the Fed would do a lot better if they stayed very close to the knitting in terms of the two main objectives rather than go diversify in terms of what their objectives are. It is not as if they have achieved their original objectives to be able to find something new to do. Yeah, there was a very interesting moment, to me at least, uh, at the beginning of that conversation yesterday. She's sort of outlining, Fed Chair Janet Yellen, outlining what the Fed does. She says there's the Furbus model, uh, there's the dynamic stochastic, stochastic general equilibrium models, but she said... You're killing me there, Killing David. you there, Tom. Me. I, I threw those in just dazzle. for you. Good morning, <laughs> she, Good morning Mr. Clarida. <laughs> but she said, uh, for actual forecasting, we don't really rely on any of those models. We take those insights and then we use a variety of tools and judgment to try to forecast what the path of the economy is going to be over the next a couple of years. I guess she's alluding there to some secret sauce that the Federal Reserve uh, has. Has the Fed gotten better at forecasting uh, under her under her leadership? I think the forecasting ability is getting worse mm. because they have been, the Fed has been wrong every year in looking for a pickup in economic growth, David, from 2009 onward. It hasn't happened. If you were the Fed chairman and you have had two or three years of failure on your forecasting ability, it should make you more modest, more humble in terms of trying to do something rather than go ahead and repeat the forecast as if you have had a stellar record on the <clears> forecasting <throat> side especially now that after seven, eight years of the so-called economic recovery that we have had, inflation is going well below the Fed's target, and economic growth is slowing before oh. it even picks up, makes me believe that the forecasting ability is not getting really b much better than before. As usual, Sri, you've had an uproar of response. I want to come back and talk about full-time jobs. But Steve Roach, with a brilliant column and summary today, yesterday, rather, in Project Syndicate, talks about Richard Baldwin of Geneva's idea of an unbundling globalization. Is everything we're talking about just about the new dynamics of globalization and almost an oversupply because of the slew rates and efficiencies of logistics, travel, trade, and all? Is, is, is there a new globalization out there? There is a new globalization, but I think there are players who dominate the new globalization are different from what it was before, Tom. You had the United States and the IMF, which used to champion globalization, free trade, and you had to drag emerging markets, many countries in Europe, along with you. Now it looks as if the, the table has turned and you have more of the emerging markets trying to form free trade associations, they have their own form of globalization, even as Europe gets better and comes closer together. So, yes, mm. I think globalization is alive, but who is leading and who is uh, dragging behind, well, I think, has changed. Let's come back. Sri Kumar with us. I got a great full-time chart. I'm going to put it out on Twitter. We'll feature it tomorrow on television um, as well. Uh, Sri Kumar with us now with a very cautious view on economic growth. Sri, um, a chart which I just seem to be doing a lot of, like, early candidates for chart of the year. Full-time employment has actually grown pretty well, but when you adjust full-time employment for population and the growth of population, 
It's stunning how bad it was at the bottom in 2008-9, and now it's only made it halfway back. We have full-time population-adjusted employment back to December of 1987. It's amazing how that full-time job has disappeared, population-adjusted. Is that part of the dampened GDP view we have? Absolutely. I think that is part of the problem and the reason why... The Fed, in terms of hiking by suggesting that we are approaching full employment with a 4.3% U3 unemployment rate, is just wide of the mark. As you pointed out, Tom, population adjusted, people are are only able to get part-time jobs. They are also accepting jobs paying less than what they were paid before. And as a result of that, they are uh, essentially there is more slack in the market. The key telling statistic here is the number of hours that worked per week, and that has been stuck at the same number, 34.4 hours average work week for the past year. That does not suggest to me that you you have a problem with not finding enough labor. Second, if you look at people who are looking for multiple jobs, that continues to remain high and rising year on year. Mm -hmm. And I would say, again, this is a corollary to what you said, Tom, if you're not able to find a full-time job and you need a full-time job to get a decent salary for yourself, you're probably looking for second, third, and fourth jobs, and which is why there is a big increase in those who are holding multiple jobs. And that also tells you that there is a real problem in the labor market. What did we learn from Mario Draghi of the ECB yesterday or the day before when he spoke in Portugal at the CCB conference? He was also talking about employment, about the employment picture in Europe. How much has that changed? How similar is the, the how similar are the challenges that Europe is facing to what we're seeing here in the U.S.? Uh, Europe has a bigger problem yeah. than the United States. Europe's biggest problem, particularly focused on France and Italy, is the fact that you have very rigid labor markets. And in fact, we are expecting... French President Macron to try to reform it starting today. And you have more than 20% youth unemployment rate in France. You have youth unemployment rate between 35 and 40% in Italy. That is a different kind of a problem. But what we have in the United States, the unemployment takes the form of the low skill occupations, David, and those who cannot get full-time jobs. In the case of France and Italy in particular, you are able to hold on to your full-time job if you're in your late 40s or in your 50s because nobody can push you out. It's very difficult to fire a worker. But jobs are just not available for those in their 20s. So it's a different kind of a problem. But I think Mario Draghi, especially in his own home country of Italy, he faces a real issue as well. What do you see as the next big test uh, in Europe? Of course, the Brexit process continues to unfold. Let's put that aside. We saw some uh, intervention in banks in Spain and, and Italy. Is that where the action is going to be? When you look at big tests here on the horizon for Europe, is it going to be in the banking sector, do you think? The, the major issues are, I think, threefold. One, you mentioned one of them. Brexit is going to be very important and how over the next two years or even longer, who knows, they may not resolve it by March 2019. How is that going to be resolved? Who is going to be the British prime minister who negotiates it? It may not be Theresa May. You may have elections. So you add to all the uncertainties. That's one problem. On the other side of the English Channel, we actually have an improvement in conditions. The purchasing managers' indexes numbers are looking good. 
German uh, index business confidence index has reached a new high recently. Germany is absolutely in the peak, and even French growth is starting to become very positive. So the final point here on the on the integration side is that Macron and uh, Merkel are talking in terms of some kind of unification. <laughs> and David, I fell out of my chair when I thought saw the cautious Angela Merkel say even before her elections in September that she may consider a common Eurozone-wide bond and perhaps a common Eurozone finance minister. This is a no-no yeah. to the German public. Those are big changes. Mm -hmm. Is this all about we just have to get used to lower growth? Politicians with their short-term frame, and it's not a hit against politicians, their, their goal is to get reelected. They they can't deal with a Srikumar growth rate, real or nominal. I mean, it's not something pol that's politically feasible. What about the rest of us? Do we just have to get used to Srikumar's world? I think um, low um, employment, low wage world, low growth world is going to persist until we change economic policy. I'm often reminded of Albert Einstein's definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing and you hope for different results. Since 2009, we have had monetary easing be the only tool that is supposed to cause economic so growth. So you'd recommend yeah. fiscal stimulus right now, infrastructure, whatever. Infrastructure should be done, and then you need structural reforms, as Germany did after 2003. <clears throat> you need vocational training. You need people to take a cup, cut in the pay so that you get education in what you can get a job, as a carpenter, for instance, or doing something in a tool factory where jobs are available and they actually they are looking for workers. Well, <clears throat> I did this chart, thank you, Michael McKee, and, and others the other day of, of hires versus job openings. Right. They've never, it's amazing. I mean, it's absolutely unreal, the lack of hiring versus job openings. Right, exactly. So it is. And then you, you have talked uh, again about the of a bifurcated or a bifurcated economy, the dichotomy, and some of the high-skill occupations that is a shortage and the quit rate is very high. Those workers are able to get other jobs. Whereas for the most of the population, uh, there is nothing. And you are talking about a low growth world. So the answer to your question is, if you want everybody to benefit from a higher growth and good job opportunities, the changes need to be on the fiscal front and they need to be structural. It cannot just be yeah. monetary. Let me ask you a bit about uh, Brazil. Our, our Sao Paulo bureau chief is in New York. We had occasion to talk with her uh, yesterday off mic just about how things are, are going there. You're, you're interested in investing in Brazil at this point. How difficult is that to do? What do you counsel an investor who perhaps sees opportunity in Brazil but is put off or worried about the political tumult that we're, we're seeing there, the latest corruption allegations against the, the sitting president of that country? I watched the, the analysis, the discussions with your Sao Paulo bureau chief with interest yesterday on TV. My approach here is Brazil. Uh, I have been going to Brazil since 1980, and I have not seen that country stay low for too long a period of mm -hmm. time. The problem you have is it is an emerging market, they say, and the joke is it will always be an emerging market. So it has not come to developed country status. However, it is not the same as Argentina, the neighboring country. It is very different from Venezuela, and you have a pickup in economic growth despite the political situation. My expectation is whether Michel Temer, the president, survives or does not survive, 
you're going to have reforms continue, particularly with pension <clears throat> and social security spending, because all politicians seem unified that that has to be done. The problem is the level of our corruption allegations against the sitting president, number one. Mm. And second, his popularity rating is 7%. And that makes it very difficult to make tough, tough changes. Here are the positives. Elections are supposed to be held in October 2018. And they may be advanced if you have an issue with the current president sure. and the population cannot stand mm -hmm. The corruption allegations. The two land leading candidates are Enrique Mireles, who is the finance minister. He was the head of a large U.S. bank in right. Brazil before, Harvard educated, <laughs> and he would be excellent. Well, He's the leading candidate as well as Lula, well, the former exactly, president. Lula again. comes back. Yes, exactly. well, that would be interesting. <laughs> Sri Kumar will come back. We'll have yes, him please. again on soon. Thank you for your huge response to Sri Kumar's comments. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. David, just was it days ago, Senator, yeah, Senator Lee was sitting in our studios. Absolutely. Talking about what's going on. Why don't you bring in the other Michael from Utah? Yeah, and Senator Lee talking about what uh, what needs to change when it comes to health care reform. And, of course, he's expressed some hesitation with the bill that was uh, put forward by Senate Republicans. Michael Levitt, uh, former Secretary of Health and Human Services, former Administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, and, of course, former Governor of the State of Utah, joins us now from our Bloomberg 991 studios uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, Secretary Levitt, great to speak with you once again. Thank you, and good uh, good morning to both of you. Let me ask you first about the role of moderates in the crafting of, of this bill. You watched all of this unfold. There were, I think, 13 uh, people involved in, in drafting it in some secrecy on Capitol Hill. Was it a mistake not to include moderates uh, in the drafting of that legislation, not to include more people, I should say, uh, in the drafting of that legislation? Anytime you draft legislation, you have to get to a basic work document, and typically it's easier to do that with fewer people than more. But uh, as we see now, uh, anyone who does not feel like they were at the table is going to have their moment, and uh, we're in a period of negotiation. Uh, Mitch McConnell has to find the 50 votes. Uh, I think in time he will. I'm not at all surprised that uh, he had to step back. I think he had to create a deadline that created pressure. Uh, he'll do it again. Uh, there'll be a moment in time when I think they vote. I think they'll ultimately get the 50 votes, but they'll have to make some, do some negotiating. They have some back pressure right now. Uh, the, the vehicle they're using to do it, which allows them to only need 50 votes, the reconciliation bill, uh, expires uh, September the 30th. Once that occurs, uh, they're without a vehicle to get it done. So I think the pressure will increase as time goes on. I had an interesting conversation a couple of days ago with Jan Brewer, of course, the former governor of Arizona. She's somebody who uh, did expand Medicaid uh, in, in her state, and she's somebody who's uh, talked to other Republicans about how successful that's been in that state. As you look at a path forward here, how much does that, the expansion of Medicaid, complicate changing the Affordable Care Act? It's a, a, a huge part of this equation. Uh, and uh, the big dilemma is that there are 16 governors, I, I believe the number is, uh, who are Republican, many of uh, whom uh, govern large states that were critical to President, uh, President Trump's uh, electoral majority, uh, have expanded the population of Medicaid recipients. 
and uh, they're not at all prepared uh, to step back from that decision. So that that, that complicates yeah. matters. What does a governor do? I think there's not enough discussion. Uh, I should call you Governor Levitt. I don't know. Can you be Secretary Levitt today? I'm not sure. <laughs> governor, what, what does a governor do when those guys in Washington – start playing around with the check they cut you for Medicaid. What, what's it like sitting at the desk in Salt Lake City when that happens? Important to recognize that these services are delivered, of course, on the ground. They're delivered where the governor lives. And they're real people behind uh, those numbers. And so the governor is hearing from a lot of people, uh, not just those that are receiving care, but those are who are providing care. Uh, and once a decision's been made to expand the population of those who depend on Medicaid, scaling it back is extraordinarily difficult. Ultimately, I believe we'll end up in a situation where the grand bargain is that there will be less money available for Medicaid, but they will grant the states greater flexibility and say to the governors, we're going to give you tools that you currently don't have in order to make these dollars go further. That's a, a piece of the debate that I think is disappointingly absent, mm-hmm. and that is how can we utilize the money we have more efficiently, and there are many ways that could be done. Within that debate, in a town 78 miles from Salt Lake City or Provo or Sandy, there's a, somebody in Utah making $37,500 a year. How do you frame to them the idea that they're going to have a three, four, five, six thousand $6,000 deductible? Is that a, a point of concern for the former governor of Utah? It's a point of concern for anyone who aspires to have everyone in America have access to an affordable insurance policy. Uh, one of the di- discussions around Medicaid right now really is a debate over what the purpose of Medicaid is. There are those who believe Medicaid is a program to help those who are in economic hardship. And then there are others who believe that Medicaid is a vehicle to expand the number of people who have insurance. If you approach this as a vehicle to expand the number of people who have insurance, uh, that comes at some cost to the person you described who makes $37,500 because you're spreading those dollars much more thinly. Uh, your office uh, at the Department of Health and Human Services in the, that brutalist Hubert Humphrey building was just a couple blocks away from, from the Capitol complex. I wonder if you could help us understand here how somebody in that position as Secretary of Health and Human Services decides when to engage or if to engage uh, with what's going on, on on Capitol Hill. You have Tom Price who has uh, talked about the need for health care reform, but this has been something that's been playing out in the halls of Congress largely. He'll chime in from, from time to time. When health care is being dealt with by Congress, how does the secretary decide whether or not he's needed to, to step in, to talk about it, to engage with lawmakers on Capitol Hill? There are two components to the secretary's job. Uh, one is that uh, the secretary is responsive to members of Congress when they ask for information. And given the fact that the Department of Health and Human Services administers the programs from the federal point of view, uh, there's a need to be responsive. But the other a duty is to represent the president of the United States, who has a point of view, uh, advocates for that point of view. Uh, I think Secretary Price is on the road today, as a matter of fact, or at least he has been this week, uh, in states talking about the president's views uh, uh, on this subject and the need for reform. So the secretary is both an administrator and an advocate uh, and uh, and is also 
has a duty on behalf of the the uh, president to be responsive to the le- legislative branch of government. Secretary Levitt, do you, do you appreciate the sense of urgency we've seen from the White House and from Republican members uh, of Congress? Uh, we had this delay yesterday. I wonder if that indicates to you that perhaps uh, lawmakers moved too quickly, that uh, they needed more time to, to hammer this out before uh, they pushed ahead with it. No, no one should be surprised by the fact that the that the Senate Majority Leader was required to push this vote back. I think if you look at what happened in the House, this is just the rhythm of Washington. It's the rhythm of legislation. You have to create a deadline. If you don't have what you need done by the deadline, you extend the deadline. You continue to uh, to negotiate. Um, On the House, uh, there was a different dynamic. You had the Freedom Mm -hmm. Caucus who had said, uh, we have to be at the table. And they basically said, we're not going anywhere until we're at the table. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then you had Paul Ryan and and Donald Trump do exactly what you'd have to do in a negotiation. They they walked away as well. And then behind the scenes, they got together. And at some point, there was a news conference, and we're going to vote tomorrow. Uh, we'll have a similar kind of episode, uh, and maybe more than that. Uh, we have between now and the 30th of September, when the vehicle that they are using to get this done, the reconciliation, expires. Uh, my guess is we'll go into uh, we'll go through the August recess. Oh, maybe interesting. We'll, interesting. We'll get into September. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Governor Levitt. Thank you so much. He is the former governor of Utah and the Secretary of Health and Human Services for uh, this uh, nation. So let's go down to Diane Swank. She, of course, is the founder of DS Economics uh, in Chicago. And Diane, I don't know if you want to take a a bite out of this, but uh, I'll have you comment if, you, if you'd like to. I know you've probably been paying close attention to what's been going on in Portugal here over these last uh, few days at the Central Bankers Confab uh, in Portugal. What did you make of what Mario Draghi had to say yesterday? Well, I think it's a difficult situation for them. They're sort of at the end of their you know, ability to really push on the economy. They're trying to. They're trying to normalize. They're trying to get out of it. The, certainly the Eurozone economy is doing better than it has been doing, which is the good news. Um, the bad news is it still requires a lot of support, and it's still highly fragmented. And at the end of the day, this is the one issue we continue to deal with in the Eurozone. You look at Mario Draghi and the case that he made yesterday that uh, more support is still needed when it comes to uh, inflation, when it comes to employment. You look at what Janet Yellen is saying about the transitory nature of the inflationary headwinds here uh, in the U.S. How hard has it become for these central bankers to defend the positions that they're, they're staking out? I think it's getting really hard. I mean, the, the interesting part for Yellen is saying that this is transitory. It may be transitory. Um, we do know that certainly cell phone prices plummeted, and that sort of was a step down. Prescription drug prices are not likely to stay down. That's true, too. But oil prices are coming down. Now, is that a big issue for the Fed or not a big issue for the Fed? Certainly, it's divided within the Fed. And I think that's what you're starting to see is these divisions as Chair Yellen attempts to sort of set up a legacy of normalization before she leaves. I think she really wants to get that in place and say we're on course for continued rate hikes and would like to get a third rate hike in this year. I think there's also this challenge that we're seeing, you know, Dudley came out and talked about it, Williams has talked about it at the Fed, and that is even though inflation is below target, since the Fed has eased, financial conditions are easier, which, you know, that's not what we expected. We expected interest rates to go up, not down. What do you see within the region of Diane Swank, not the state of Illinois, which is its own fiction right now, fiscally. (laughs) But Diane Swank, I think our audience really desperately wants to know a view 
outside the cozy confines of three zip codes in New York City or for many or two zip codes in Washington. I mean, do you see a vector up of economic growth or do you see the disinflationary malaise people like Sri Kumar are talking about? You know, I really think what's interesting is the conundrum we're sitting to, starting to see with inflation. We are seeing really tight labor market conditions. Yes. Um, it's really stunning. I've talked to an enormous amount of employers that are saying, yes, we're having a hard time filling jobs. I don't talk to a lot of employers that are raising wages. And so, you know, they're training more. They're investing more in lower-skilled workers, and so that may show up as the overall cost of bringing on and onboarding a worker, which you do expect to see as the labor market tightens. The skills aren't there that once were there, or the skills set has moved. It's a moving target of what people need. We all know this is a 50-year trend. It's really prevalent here in the Midwest, and the complaints I'm hearing are consistent across the board, yet we're still not seeing that real... One of the biggest surprises in last month's um, employment report was manufacturing in the durable goods, cars, heavy manufacturing. That productivity picked up a bit, and wages decelerated. That yeah, was the first time I'd seen exactly. that major deceleration in a long time. What G, what level of GDP growth is Janet Yellen managing? Janet Yellen managing towards? Is she well, managing yeah, towards two point eight percent? I mean, no. Christine Lagarde's at two point one percent. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, if we're if we're lucky, we'll get two and a quarter or two, two point one percent, two percent, two percent is our stuck range. But we're at that's potential growth now, and you know, it gets in this hard thing about who's employable, who's not employable. That's full employment. That's not who wants a job. And I think there's a really hard line here about what do we do when we deal with many of these workers that for a long time have lost some of their soft skills and hard skills. How do we bring them up to speed? And it's not just the Great Recession made it worse, where you had people that were on part-time employment even longer. You've got the rural-urban divide. And, you know, it's one of the things where maybe Larry Summers had a little bit of a point, I think. That, you know, the issue of, you know, us eroding skills. World War II wasn't just a spending stimulus. Well, let's, let's, millions of people to get back in the labor force. This is really important. Diane Swank with us from Chicago. Let's come back and address Mr. Summers and the phrase secular stagnation. Uh, Diane, I believe it's Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX. Let us start with consumption. Uh, it has been dampened. There is a retail uproar where I guess Amazon does better and everybody else does work. Do you just assume <laughs> a diminished yeah. do, do, do you just assume a diminished consumption? Um, you know, no, it's, it's actually, once you adjust for inflation, because inflation has come, this is another issue. Is it the Walmart effect of the 1990s, the globalization, that stepped down in inflation we saw as people comparison shop more and move online from in stores? That's another factor that the Fed has to take into, you know, sort of in, in, into its mindset. Is it secular or is it cyclical? It's a bit secular, right? This is the move of how we shop. We shop off our phones now. Um, that's a very different way than we shopped in the past, and it's you know going to upend the retail sector. It already is. We're also spending on entertainment. We're spending on experiences in different ways, and that's where we should see the inflation. Some of it's been seen there, not as much as we expect so far. Diane, let me ask you how you when you look at the housing market, how you assess the, the health of it. What's what's the indicator that's most important to you? We get pending home sales a little later this morning at ten o'clock yeah. at Wall Street time. What, what's the indicator you look to? 
Well, you know, what's interesting is, um, one, is just how how long does it take to sell a home on the market? And that has just dropped and plummeted since, of course, the crisis when no one could move a home. Nobody wanted to buy a home and nobody could sell a home. Now we've got less than a month on a market in terms of existing home sales. And in some areas, much less than that, bidding wars coming back. The fact, this is one of those things that they started to notice but didn't really understand the meaning of it. I think Ned Gramlich saw it was TV shows on how to flip homes. You know, all of a sudden those are getting really popular again. Investors coming in, cash buyers coming in, first-time buyers coming in. The problem is demand is outpacing supply. Uh, Yeah, but this is the polarity, Diane, that you're so good at. You've got just what you said, and we all get that. And yet at the same time, I've got news articles telling me the percent of paycheck going to rent across the country borders on Jimmy Stewart in that movie from the Depression. I mean, I'm sorry, Diane, and you've led on this. It is to America's. Um, it is to America's. There's no question. The other issue is you can't get people from rural America who are underwater on their mortgages and with a lower skill set to move to urban America where they require higher skills and it's more expensive of their paychecks. They can't get enough paychecks to even take that larger piece out of. There is also a trade-off between rents and home ownership. That arbitrage is starting to narrow as we've had this constraint on supply. Many of these constraints on supply, you hear the president talk about deregulation. He can't touch the deregulation at the state and local level. Um, in terms of what's going on on land use costs, particularly bad in places like L.A., in San Francisco, where, you know, they put all these restrictions where you can't literally afford to build a new a new um, home uh, for a starter, per, starter group, an entry-level home. The uh, construction costs have just accelerated dramatically, everything from materials, and now labor shortages are acute. Go into Texas and you ask them about labor, shor- labor shortages, and they're a little bit concerned. They don't have anyone to build homes right now. Dovetail this uh, with your, your work on the Federal Reserve. Are we starting to see the effects of the, the Fed raising rates, considering what to do with, with its balance sheet playing out in the housing market? You know, that's the real question. People are like, oh, it's a bubble in the housing market again. Well, you know, it's very uneven. What we've got is overall real estate values have sort of climbed to previous peaks, and some markets have exceeded previous peaks, and that is an imbalance between supply and demand. It's not just because of low rates. It's because of this lack of supply as well. That's not anything the Federal Reserve can do much about. And what they'd like to see, we are also seeing with lower gas prices. You mentioned lower prices at the pump. People are willing to expand their search. Finally, last year, we saw people buying in the suburbs again, not just the urban cores. It turns out older millennials mm-hmm. want to form homes. Yeah. They ha- they defer it. They have it later, but they will commute. They don't need to be just in the urban cores. But can we generate not only within housing, but just within general consumption, the spirit we used to know at two point whatever percent GDP? I don't buy it for a minute. Well, no, you can't because that consumption was generated on debt, and we don't have the access to debt we once did. Well, we don't. Have, we don't um, have the. Number- we don't have the. In- and we don't have the evenness, the aggregate. Aggregates disguise the unevenness of income distribution. Thank you. That's really important There you go. Statement. And That's the a- Fed has to manage the aggregates, but it really is. And it's one of the conundrums. Fiscal policy is much better directed. Okay. You know, we talked about World War II lifting sk- skills. What do we have out there that can systematically lift okay. the skills mm-hmm. of people who have lost them for 50 years? That was Dr. Swank channeling the late Alan Meltzer. Let's back up and read this, <laughs> folks. Alan Meltzer once Alan told me great. out at Carnegie Mellon, um, we, I think Marvin Goodfriend was holding my elbow saying, shut up, Tom, listen to Dr. <laughs> Meltzer. He said aggregates matter in that you sum in on the macro. 
114% of our listeners, Professor Swank, don't agree. They see every day two or three Americas. Explain to them why we should aggregate a la Alan Meltzer. Well, you know, um, I love Alan. I loved him, and I miss him. Um, I disagree on the disaggregation is important. Unfortunately, when you're making monetary policy, you don't have any other way to do it because if you don't aggregate, you're going to you have to um, you're going to have so much overshooting. So you do need to do it. That said. It's fiscal policy that really gets into the disaggregation. That's where the representation is, after all. And I think that's really important. And I think what we need to do is we need to think about fiscal policy that makes our labor market more friendly to – we've seen women. Female participation rate in the United States is 17 among 22 OECD countries. It has plateaued. To raise that participation rate, we need to change some labor laws that make it more advantageous. And now the economics, the incentives, it's not detrimental. It's – actually beneficial for firms to have more diversity in the labor force and a larger pool to tap from. They have lower turnover rates. It costs them less. The cost benefit is now there to change some of these labor laws that we have failed to change. And I think that's one of the most important issues. I'm talking to large companies right now, some of the largest in the in the world, multinationals, and they're embracing diversity in a way I've never seen it, not because it's a nicety, but because it's a necessity. Even invisible diversity is one of which I have. Not that I'm a woman, that's pretty visible, but I'm dyslexic. It turns out dyslexics, we're good at doing calculus in our head and thinking about complex problems and being able to see reaction functions. It's a little harder to tell the difference between the words from and form. Hmm. Diane, let me ask you lastly about uh, some data that we got on Monday, the durable goods order data that was down 1.1%. The expectation was it'd be down 0.6%. Yeah. Uh, This is a a volatile measure, of course. How worried does that make you about uh, the, the health of that part of the economy? We've underinvested, and people say, oh, as a share of the economy, we haven't. It's a low economy, so it's a small share. The reality is we've underinvested given the kind of profit share we've seen. We've seen record profit share in this recovery, partly because these businesses, non-financials, restructured their balance sheet. They got a lot of money, but it wasn't redeployed in a future. And there's something, and this gets back to maybe Larry Summers had a point, and I think he did in some ways, is that not building a base for a future. Productivity growth started slowing in 2005, took another step down in 2010. The dividends of the earlier tech bubble were sort of reaped, and then we didn't invest for the next wave. A lot of the technology investment we're putting in today is to defense, you know, cybersecurity, not to, for offense, not to think about how to be competitive, or there's a lot of money going into applications on our phones that trigger dopamine and get us addicted. I'm not sure how productive they are. I'm just talking about watching my millennials. (laughs) Quick question here, lastly, just about soft data and hard data. Of course, that's sort of highlighting the the, the divide between the the, the two things. Uh, do, do you value one more than the other at this point? When you look at the U.S. economy, are you are you paying more attention to soft data than hard data? You've got to look at them together because basically what we've got is um, something that sort of fills in the colors between the lines. We get an outline of the economy from the hard data, and we try to shade it with the soft data. And so the soft data on manufacturing confirm what we saw in industrial production. Then industrial production is picking up. The hard data is saying it's not picking up enough to invest in our infrastructure, in our future. And I think understanding those two steps and how much do we need for it to pick up to really see that investment in our infrastructure consistently, how much strength. Many companies I'm talking to are saying, it's 2% growth. There's not enough of a mm-hmm. you know, sunrise on the horizon to shoot for. No, Dana Swank, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Swank Economics.
What a good time to speak with Brian Weezer, who like no one links the modern, modern digital economy to the advertising world. Uh, like uh, Mr. Weezer, Brian, I'm just from where you are, and I don't want to get into state tax minutia because it's not anybody's expertise. But when the president of the United States goes hashtag Amazon Washington Post, do you presume a tight linkage between Mr. Bezos and Amazon and the day-to-day grind of the Washington Post? I don't think so. I mean, I think we all know that they run those businesses pretty separately. Um, so I don't think there's an issue. I mean, obviously, the president can try to draw a connection as, right. uh, as he wants. But uh, but I don't think anyone who yeah. is close to the business thinks that – I mean, beyond like these – modestly helpful things on ad products. I mean, we hear about, you know, the, the, the shift of uh, how they deliver content, um, yeah. very minor technical things where he has people who can throw expertise at it. But I think when it comes to editorial, I mean, it, it's just the fact that they have resort. The only connection is the fact that they know they don't, they won't go bankrupt anytime soon. They can keep investing yeah. against long form journalism. It should make clear. Mr. Weiser does not cover Amazon. We just wanted to get that in with a tweet of the president here. On Amazon Washington uh, Post. Facebook, 2 billion units. Brian, you were brilliant on Facebook as I struggled and then really like a moonshot have done better than good. We've talked a lot about the upside of revenue for different tech platforms. Does Facebook have unlimited upside revenue? No, absolutely not. And this is where I think, you know, Wall Street's maybe getting a little ahead of itself, uh, certainly this year. Um, a simple math would say that uh, if you assume that digital advertising grew by about 15% each year over the next six years, digital advertising would be about 100% of advertising. Uh, sorry, Tom, that unless you're on Facebook, that means you're not working and probably means that all the radio industry, all the TV industry, all the print, everything is gone. That is totally not realistic. And yet, I think that there are many in the investment community who think 15 to 20% growth rates for Internet in general are sustainable, which are absolutely not. And so, yes, Google and Facebook will continue to take the bulk of share of that growth. But the reality is that we're starting to approach this point where they're, they saturate the market, so to speak, in terms of what's plausible. I mean, it's, it's a few years away is the point. And so at that point, you get to a terminal growth rate number. So uh, I think that there, there is a bit of a gap uh, from uh, where investors are to where reality is. Now, you could be Facebook, for example, and you could say, hey, we, we know that we're running out of room in pure digital budgets, so we need this TV money. This is among the reasons why for years Facebook has been saying we have a Super Bowl audience, why we can do anything TV can do. Reality? No, they can't. And so they're investing in premium content like TV to get TV budgets. But the problem is that's going to be lower margin. Right, Brian, and so that's going to be one of these trade-offs they have to make. Brian Weiser with us with Pivotal. We're awaiting an important conference uh, in Portugal uh, with central bankers, including Mr. Draghi, Mr. Polos of Canada, Mr. Kuroda of Japan, and Mr. Carney of the United Kingdom. We're going to bring that to you when we get to it. But uh, David Gura, they're tastefully late, is, <laughs> is they call it in the banker world. Brian Weiser, let me ask you about – I remember a few years back, Sheryl Sandberg getting out and saying how video is going to be incredibly important to Facebook. When you look at the metric we got yesterday that the number of users has now exceeded 2 billion, how much of that is attributable to this video strategy that was put in place? It's not. I don't think so. I mean, it, it, to be clear, they're continuously improving and iterating what their product is and what the consumer experience is. Um, but it's also true that as they, you know, to get to 2 billion versus a 1.8 versus a 1.6, so they have a presence in, say, Indonesia, 
Uh, and in a market like Indonesia, a certain threshold of people have uh, devices that can access Facebook. and Or, or ultimately, Facebook has a Facebook Lite product, which is arguably much more important, which would not be about video. Um, and so that just makes it possible for more people to use the platform, right? So that's how you get user growth. The user growth is not particularly meaningful. In every major market with advertising, uh, they are relatively ubiquitous or about as ubiquitous as they'll get. You know, 78% of the population is using it, and it's not going to go much higher than that. And if it did, it wouldn't make it much of a difference anyways. Um, the video strategy in terms of having video uh, related content, again, it helps with engagement, helps people want to share a video, do it through Facebook rather than on, say, YouTube or somewhere else. Are we beginning to see a movement toward companies like Facebook creating more original content uh, of their own? In the past, we've seen them broker deals with news outlets, uh, for instance. Um, is Facebook's future, does, it, does that involve more content creation? Yeah, well, I think we've established that Bloomberg will get subsumed into Facebook and Google. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> um, but no, I think that if, if they want to see more of the advertising dollars that is presently associated with premium content, that yes, they will. And I think they will because, you know, the, the analogy, I've, I wish I could remember who described it to me, but putting video on Facebook, like premium video on Facebook, is like having chocolate in the vegetable aisle of a grocery store. They're kind of disjointed, but you could find ways to make them go together. Um, and so that's kind of where they are. It's like, sure, they're going to just grow their total uh, consumption um, from a user perspective and from an advertiser perspective. They're producing a product that is much more appealing uh, and, and takes share wallet uh, from a lot of their existing customers. When you, when you look at all of the social media companies right now, exclusive of, of Facebook, which is coming closest uh, to Facebook? Where's the, where's the threat coming from, I guess, is what I'm asking. Well, as I say, the first thing is the, is just the law of large numbers. Yeah. Um, now you have competition between Facebook and Google, certainly, um, where they're each fighting for share of uh, many of the same customers. So uh, Facebook and Google are both uh, significant with small, medium-sized enterprises. Google is bigger. Facebook has compelling products and is growing pretty fast with SMBs. E-commerce is something that um, Facebook really hasn't solved for. Uh, if you're an e-commerce uh, related advertiser, Google is really where you're still concentrating your budgets. Um, with large brands, um, they can both fight for the for the audience, uh, or sorry, for the advertiser budget in that way. Um, beyond that, the, the two of them basically take share on an ongoing basis. Now, can someone like Oath, which is the division of Verizon, which includes AOL and Yahoo? Um, as well as display inventory from Microsoft that they represent, can they serve as sort of a, a point of leverage for an advertiser when they're negotiating? Yes, and so they can take incremental share. Amazon is, is and has been the sleeping giant out there. Again, I don't cover Amazon, but I do pay attention to the uh, implications for advertising. They are possibly one of the largest, um, they have some of the largest potential uh, to capture advertising budgets, um, uh, at least among certain segments of advertisers. And so they'll be increasingly competitive uh, as time progresses as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.